Okay, before we start, you should know that we're going to be talking about stories with descriptions of pregnancy loss. It might not be appropriate for all audiences, so take care while listening. The other day, I was on a panel discussing a CNN Republican presidential candidate town hall. Audie, as we go into this, uh, this, this event... No, not that one. What's the most critical thing that you think has to happen for Nikki Haley? Nikki Haley is the only Republican woman in the presidential race, at least for now. And that night, I heard some nuance in her answer on abortion rights that surprised me. And I think we can all come together and say any woman that has an abortion shouldn't be jailed or, or, or given the death penalty. Can't we start there? No other candidate has really talked about this bit of it. That with the Supreme Court's historic decision to end Roe v. Wade last year, some state bans on abortion further opened the door to criminalization for people who provide abortions and for people who need them. If you are pregnant and you do something that allegedly exposes your fetus or your pregnancy to some harm or some risk of harm, you can be charged with a crime. That could be driving without a seatbelt while pregnant. That could be falling down a flight of stairs while pregnant. That could be drinking wine or um, using medical marijuana. So on this episode, we wanted to find out what's happening to people caught up in that web of changing laws. Who are the lawyers defending them? What keeps them up at night? And now that the highest court in the land has ruled that abortion is not constitutionally protected, what's the focus of the next round of legislative fights? I'm Audie Cornish. This is The Assignment. It's been one year since the Supreme Court ruled in Dobbs v. Jackson Women's Health Organization. It came down on June 24th, which was my daughter's um, preschool graduation ceremony. That's Dana Sussman, mother to a bona fide preschool alumna and acting executive director of Pregnancy Justice. It's an organization that defends people who are facing criminal charges for their pregnancy outcomes. Births, miscarriages, stillbirths, and yeah, abortions. So we read the decision. We all huddled together via Zoom. There was a lot of tears I personally completely broke down in front of my entire staff. I then had to pick up the pieces and go to my daughter's preschool graduation where we and many of the other parents, we were all sort of um, taking this in together and all very emotional together. To understand what picking up and taking it in looks like a year post-Dobbs, we also brought in Amanda Allen. She's senior counsel and director at The Lawyering Project. They represent abortion providers and supporters, people like doctors, nurses, women's health clinics, and abortion funds. So much of my life has been holding virtually or in real life clients' hands and walking them through, here are the protections that the law offers you still, post-Dobbs. Here are the risks you face for the, the types of things you want to do. It's a lot of client counseling. It's a lot of advising. There were some issues that we really thought were going to be a big deal, right? The newspaper, especially in, I think, young feminist publications, were like, stock up on Plan B and uh, shut down your pregnancy apps. Like, there was this whole, can you talk about some of the things you remember hearing that just, like, haven't really panned out? I can't tell you how many media inquiries we got around period tracking apps. It really caught fire. And I think it... it, Amanda actually laughing there. Like that's... (laughs) 
Um, sure, eliminate your period tracking app, but that doesn't change the fact that our phones surveil us in a thousand different ways. So we're really not moving the needle all that much. Truthfully, though, the ways in which people are surveilled in any criminal case would apply in the context of a pregnancy-related charge. So we're talking about text messages with friends, Facebook messages, uh, DMs, things like that, online purchases. These are things that are used when whenever someone is being investigated for a crime. And I think it's important for people to understand that digital privacy is sort of a misnomer. It's yeah. the reality of the world we live in. So you're saying it's it's not unheard of, but that doesn't sound like that's how people are getting caught. Right. Or it's not sound like it sounds like that's not how law enforcement is getting tipped off. Is that correct? That's correct. And the way they're getting tipped off is unfortunately through healthcare providers and child welfare workers. The most typical sort of chain of events is someone experiences a medical emergency. Um, they're experiencing pregnancy loss. They call 911 or they go to the hospital or they're in labor and they're, go- and they're going to the hospital to deliver. They may test positive for a substance. They may experience a pregnancy loss and I'm using air quotes under suspicious circumstances. And then there might be a child welfare call by a hospital social worker or a nurse or the police may be called right um, directly by the by the healthcare providers or the healthcare institution. That's the most common way in which a case that we work on starts. It's a report by another human being. Amanda Allen, for you, how do cases start? Well, I was just going to add to to what Dana said quickly. The the other way is at least anecdotally through abusive partners. Right? We have that case. There's a case in Texas where an ex husband got a hold of his his ex-wife's text messages with her friends and they were discussing helping her get medication abortion drugs and then the ex sued her friends for wrongful death and so i think that's that's another path to the legal system for the lawyering project our cases really come from our our existing client base so meaning all the clinics and providers who are like we need to keep these guys close to help us are the ones who are calling you? And is it because they're concerned about being shut down? Is it because they're concerned a phone call will be made about them? Like, what are their actual worries? Yeah, their their worries really run the gamut from, yeah, like, we, we, we just got a letter that we're going to have an emergency inspection next week, and we're worried that the, the state is going to use that inspection um, to, to try to shut us down, to try to yank our license. Um, there can be things like that. There can also be, hey, this bill is moving, and if it passes, it's really good going to cut off access for, you know, this whatever state it is that's, that is still able to provide care. Um, could we challenge this law? And if so, what would that look like? Um, and so, you know, the a lot of the calls that we get are... Um, in, start with advice, like how do how would we comply with this law, or um, what do we do about this threat that we just received? Um, and then some of those do end up turning into cases because we we can find a way to challenge that law that passed or that action that was taken against them. Do you guys have any questions for each other? Amanda, I I hate to ask this because I think it's a stressful question, but I get it a lot. So I'm really curious what how you would answer this, which is like, what keeps you up at night? I think the um, FDA, the case against the FDA right now and all of the um, threats against medication abortion specifically keep me up at night. And can you explain just a little bit about that case? 
Yeah, that's the case that a group of anti-abortion advocates brought against the Food and Drug Administration, um, alleging that the FDA improperly approved mifepristone, which is the first drug used in a medication abortion, and also the gold standard for miscarriage management, I should I should highlight. Um, they're alleging that the FDA should have never approved it and didn't follow, you know, standard practices. All of that is is completely, um, you know, completely not based in reality, completely— um, Well, all of that is now being the subject of legal— question and wrangling. Exactly. And because they filed in um, a district court in Texas where they knew they would have a friendly judge, and then um, that case got appealed to the Fifth Circuit, which is sort of notoriously known for for its conservative and anti-abortion views, um, you know, this group knew that they had a pretty good shot at at least, um, you know, creating the kind of chaos that that we've seen since Dobbs. Um, and so while Mifepristone is still available just like it was, you know, months and years ago, that case is going through the court system right now with the, the chance of ultimately being before the, the Supreme Court, I would say within the next year or so. Stripping everyone in this country of access to that drug um, would be catastrophic. And it is something that a few years ago we wouldn't have dreamed of talking about. But the federal courts in particular are are really just a hostile, hostile place to be right now. Dana, what keeps you up at night? Such, this is such a positive um, conversation. But I would say it's um, a prosecutor in a state that where we are not focusing our attention at the moment because we have limited resources and we're small, um, wakes up tomorrow and decides to utilize their state's um, fetal personhood law to convert all of their criminal laws into laws that could criminalize pregnancy, meaning that a fetus or a fertilized egg or embryo has essentially theoretically co-equal rights with everyone else. And of course, in the context of pregnancy, that just is impossible. If you are pregnant and your fetus has the same rights as you, what that ultimately means is that you have less rights. Um, But we have seen prosecutors in states like Alabama and Oklahoma and South Carolina and Ohio use criminal laws in really problematic and unlawful ways. But it's interesting that you're thinking of, like, in this entire chain of criminalization, law enforcement, et cetera, you're you're thinking about prosecutors in particular, and you both were kind of nodding about that. Can you talk about how significant that is? Because in many places, obviously, this is like an elected position. Um, They have a lot of discretion. Like, what kind of effect is the prosecutorial community kind of having on your lives? It is everything. It is the ballgame in in our work. Um, it's interesting because I got asked a question about, you know, state hotspots. And I was like, it's not about a state. It's about a county. You can go to a single state. And in one county, there might be 10 pregnant women in jail or postpartum people in jail in any given moment. You go to the neighboring county, that prosecutor is not bringing these charges. The amount of discretion that prosecutors have is quite remarkable. When you actually get to speak to a prosecutor, what kind of questions do they have for you, Right. And and what are you trying to say to them? Like, you're not in court. You're just like, hey, this is what we're thinking. Well, it really depends on the prosecutor. So we have conversations with prosecutors who are actively bringing these cases. And the conversation we have with them is, if you really care about babies, if you really care about unborn life, and theoretically, the baby, once it's born, criminalizing pregnancy and pregnant people harms babies. And they say to you what? Um, 
thank you. We'll take it under advisement. Um, you know, I, you know, we we have had some success in um, ensuring that prosecutors know that we will put up a really, really lengthy and time-consuming and resourced fight. Um, and that is not something that maybe they were expecting. A lot of our cases make assumptions that something a pregnant person does or doesn't do during their pregnancy can impact a pregnancy outcome. And in meaning drugs, right? Yeah, it could be substance use. It could be or alcohol, even alcohol. It could be you know not following your doctor's orders around bed rest. It could be being in a dangerous quote unquote dangerous situation while pregnant. Um, but for the most part much larger systemic factors impact pregnancy outcomes and very little that an individual does or doesn't do during pregnancy um, can actually have, you know, cause a pregnancy loss, for example. So it can be... So you've got to undermine the very concept of this is endangering a person. Right, or causation for that matter. It's going to be very hard for a prosecutor to establish that this thing, that this person did caused their pregnancy loss. What I hear you saying, though, is that more prosecutors are willing to try. Yes. Oh, for sure. And the way our criminal legal system works assumes that um, most people will not have the resources to put up a defense that would push back on these assumptions, that would bring in other experts. Um, The churn of the criminal legal system is such that people are so terrified, especially people who are you know, maybe just had a baby, maybe just experienced a tragic pregnancy loss, they will plead to something so that this is over and they can get reunited with their family more more quickly and recover more quickly. They are, so we are dealing with a under-resourced public defense system, um, court-appointed counsel. And so prosecutors are able to bring these cases without a lot of attention or accountability. And we try to slow that down and bring that attention and accountability. Amanda, listening to Dana talk, what do you hear that mirrors your experience with prosecutors? Yeah, in a very literal way, mostly with impact litigation, which which the Lawyering Project does, we sue prosecutors, right? So they're defendants in our cases. Um, a lot of times it's the attorney general of a state because they're essentially, you know, considered the the main, you know, the, the head of, of, you know, enforcing the state's criminal laws. Um, and so in that sense, you know, that's kind of our most direct um, relationship with with prosecutors and, and enforcement actors um, is, is really, you know, showing up in court and saying, if you enforce this, you know, this this is an unconstitutional criminal law that you are charged with enforcing and we're asking a court to tell you not to. What are they arguing back? Well, it depends on the state and it depends on really the the political and uh, and sort of, you know, the, the overall climate of the state. So, for example, we have a case right now in Indiana State Court, um, which we in which we challenged the total abortion ban the legislature there passed shortly after Dobbs, um, and the the defendants in that state are are all um, in you know Indiana state officials, uh, the governor, you know anyone charged with enforcing that ban. Um, and our argument is that the Indiana Constitution provides a separate basis for a right to abortion, and their argument is, no, it doesn't. So far, the Indiana Supreme Court has at least agreed with us to the extent that it will block that law from taking effect while the case proceeds. But it sounds like, um, Dana, you deal with that kind of local county prosecutor um, and your client, and then when Amanda comes to town, that's when things have really escalated. Yeah, I mean, it's different tactics. It's like now the state is embroiled in something. Yes, yes. And I think the difference, too, is um, 
state legislatures are passing abortion bans and abortion restrictions left and right. And Amanda and lawyers who work from that position are coming in to enjoin those laws, to prevent those laws from going into effect. We are working with a different set of laws um, where prosecutors are essentially with using their own power and in many cases abusing their own power to enforce different types of laws that have existed for a long time um, and expand them into places surrounding pregnancy and abortion. Um, but I think what's very similar among these, um, you know, that that I see in our work is this idea that you can legislate around care and you and and you can prosecute around care. And that is just the lines are too gray. And pregnancy is quite complicated. In, in, incredibly. I thought that the Dobbs decision was supposed to simplify things, right? This is what you, this is the argument. Send this back to the states. They'll make the decision. Right. This is Amanda, and this is my biggest, one of my biggest pet peeves was this idea that somehow sending this issue back to the states was going to, yeah, make things simpler, make things, it's just whatever the voters essentially get to decide. And what we were all saying was this is going to create mayhem because there are going to be 50 different states with 50 different laws and no sort of federalized constitutional standard. And the, you know, what we were most afraid of happening um, has come to pass and, and probably even worse because we've got patients who are traveling hundreds of miles to get care. They're deciding whether to um, pay their light bill or you know, use that money for their abortion and their travel, right? And we're seeing doctors who are so afraid of being prosecuted, even in in, in cases where the the abortion would clearly fall under an exception. The, the fetus had absolutely no chance of surviving. The patient was literally bleeding out near sepsis. And we're seeing those doctors so afraid because of the, the criminal penalties associated with with that abortion ban that those patients are are again traveling hundreds of miles leaving the state we'll be back in a moment we all do things our own way and since the way that each of us sleeps is unique you need a bed that fits you just the right way Sleep Number Smart Beds make your sleep experience as individual as you are, using cutting-edge technology to give you effortless, high-quality sleep every night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, during Sleep Number's President's Day sale, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed plus special financing for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. See store for details. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, CNN's chief medical correspondent. This week on Chasing Life, I sit down with Giles Yeo. It is a problem of our brain influencing the hunger. So hunger is a brain scenario, even though the feeling of hunger comes from your stomach. It's a very new and provocative way of thinking about a condition that impacts more than 40% of Americans. But the thing is, this approach could have big consequences for the way that we treat obesity. Listen to Chasing Life wherever you get your podcasts. Dana, for you, is there a client story that you're working on now or that kind of sticks with you in the post-Dobbs era? Sure. Um, I'm working on a case right now in coalition with a couple other organizations where a young person is facing criminal charges 
for experiencing a preterm birth at home. She brings the baby. The baby is born. She brings the baby. The baby is alive. They try their best to provide the best care that they can at this local hospital, which does not have a sophisticated uh, NICU, um, and the baby does not survive. And this was in what trimester? Um, This was, well, in the second trimester. So the hospital that she went to for care and support. Please help me. I am holding. Exactly. Like, I'm coming to you, right, with my hands full of pain, essentially. Mm -hmm. So the hospital alerts her. She's charged. When she's charged, what happens after the hospital alerts the police? Do the police show up at the hospital? Like, what actually happened? So typically, yes, the police will show up in the hospital. They'll question the individual. But what happened in this case? I don't have the exact timeline. We're supporting the public defender who, it's you know, we always partner with a public defender, local uh, criminal defense attorney or public defender. So she was charged with what again? Um, She was originally charged with third-degree murder and child endangerment, and she was held in jail with no bail. So she couldn't, even if she wanted to, pay bail to get released. Um, early in her, in a pretrial hearing, we were able to get her out, and we were able to get the third-degree murder charge dropped. So she's still facing a child endangerment charge. And where is this? I don't want to share. It's not yet public. Um, like, is it in a state where there's a ban? No. No. That's wild, because I think we make an assumption that people are, quote-unquote, safe from this kind of enforcement if they're in a state where abortion rights remain. I think that goes back to what Dana was saying about it's not about the state, it's about the county. Yep, yep. And I will say this is in a more conservative part of a state that you wouldn't suspect as a state that we would need to pay a lot of attention to on these cases. But again, it's it's the county and the individual prosecutor and the choices that they're making. When the conversation was happening, it's like people in Handmaid's Tales costumes— Everyone's going to jail. It was just very apocalyptic. But realistically, how are you feeling about where you are right now? What does give me hope is that I'm seeing so many signs, sign after sign after sign, that voters are pissed about this, right? Um, We saw in Kansas last year, voters resoundingly rejected a constitutional amendment that would have said that the Constitution doesn't protect abortion rights, right? Um, That that was an unexpected, uh, you know, wide, wide margin victory there, right? We saw the same same thing in Michigan. The question is really around how do we um, mobilize enough to get that message out in the next election cycle? Does that mean that... More people have to hear about these cases that Dana has. Like, do actually do people care if they hear that somebody was arrested for a fetal personhood crime? I think they do. I think they do more and more. And I, I think that one of the things that gives me hope too is that people are making these connections. They get it. They're they're really starting to understand how how this work and how this system is connected and how. When we eliminate the right to abortion, it's actually about more than abortion. And it's about all of our reproductive decisions. And um, that could include IVF. That could include um, getting miscarriage care. That could include going on to have a healthy baby. Um, and we need to work across those issue areas and connect it to, to, to broader themes. And I think that people are starting to really understand that. And they're outraged. And people are more and more outraged about the kinds of cases that we take on as well. 
I want to offer you guys one more chance to talk to each other because there's things that I don't know to ask about that you know to ask each other. Dina, how do you talk to your children about your work? We both have small children. Well, because of Zoom land, my six-year-old has overheard me talk about work in ways that I wish I had been able to talk to him first. Um, Mm. But we did have a career day at school, and I was, frankly, too flummoxed to figure out a way to explain what I do to six-year-olds. But um, So what's he heard? So um, unfortunately, he heard that um, in one of our cases in California, um, uh, a mother experienced a neonatal death. And um, so the baby died. And I said to a reporter that her baby died. And my son was on the couch and he did not know that babies could die. Um, And so we had to have a conversation about that. And it felt really, really, really awful. And, you know, that I wish he hadn't been there for that conversation, to be honest. Um, But he did say at career day to a parent who came in who was a lawyer, uh, the parent asked, um, does anyone know what lawyers do? Or does anyone know a lawyer? And my son raised his hand and said, my mom's a lawyer. And she said, do you know what kind? And he said, she gets women out of jail because for having babies. And I thought that was like a really, <laughs> that was sort of a better way to describe it than I think I ever could. And I was so incredibly proud. Um, so I think he gets it um, on some level. Uh, my five-year-old, not quite there yet, but um, she knows that I fight for moms and babies. Kids can really sum stuff up, can't they? Yeah. What about you? What about your kids? Well, the youngest is is only a year and a half, right. so she doesn't know what's going on. But um, but I have a seven year old, and I think I've I've been talking to them about my work since they were about five, and I just kind of tried to explain it in the most basic kind of step by step terms as I could. Like, so you know, like. Mommy and mommy's had, you know, three pregnancies, including a miscarriage. And, um, you know, like I got really sick during all those pregnancies. Right. And it was really hard on, uh, you know, on my body. Right. And like kind of just walking them through like pregnancy is not a walk in the park for many of us. Um, and including those of us who really, really wanted those pregnancies. This is such a complex thing to explain. And, um, I have a five-year-old, so I kind of understand that phase where they're like, but why? But, mm-hmm. but how? But why? Right. Well, yep. does this? And that you see them in real time. I mean, you're explaining stuff that is in murky moral waters for a lot of people, right? I mean, Amanda, is it you who had grown up in a religious household? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, and so I, you know, I come to this work from a very different, I think, perspective than most most attorneys in this movement. Um, my uh, my dad's an evangelical minister, and I grew up as a child identifying very strongly as pro-life. Um, I have memories of decorating signs for pro-life rallies as a kid. Um, and so, you know, I, I do come to this work from uh, a perspective of someone who um, really went through a transformation to, um, to get to where I'm at. Um, right. and, and, and heard a very different message from a parent about mm-hmm. what's going on. Exactly. And um, and part of that informs the way I talk to my child about my work, um, because I don't want to um, I, I don't want to sort of force any moral beliefs or any, um, you know, convictions like that on them. But at the same time, I have those <laughs> I have these moral beliefs and these convictions. And so um, what I've mostly how I've mostly tried to frame it is 
nobody else should get to decide for someone else. Um, you know, every, and, you know, I also, in addition to talking about how difficult pregnancy is on, on someone, I talk about how hard babies are, right? And after um, their their little sister was born, I was like, you know, you you see how much B cries, right? You see how how hard it is on us, how little sleep we get. Does it make sense to you that somebody would get to decide for them that they had to have this baby? There's someone listening to this right now who is appalled that you're saying that. Yeah. I believe that. But that's real. And people have lives to live and decisions to make. And that's real for a lot of people, too. I, Audie, I thought you were going to say something else. I thought you were going to say there's someone listening to this thinking, okay, now I have a way in to talk to my child about abortion. (laughs) That was going to be my next question, right? There's lots of people who see this news story in the paper, and this is the one where, you know, my kid, they point to the paper and they say, well, what's that? And you're like, oh, some people are mad at each other. You say some (laughs) very generic, not great parent thing. Um, That's me. I'm raising my hand. And you guys are saying like, yeah, you're, there's a way to engage in this conversation. Yeah. um, I went through IVF, so my child only only understands that babies are born in a or, or created in a lab. Um, so that's a unique experience <laughs> or a yes, unique understanding. Another another appalled listener right. just heard that. <laughs> and you know, I jokingly would say loophole. I, we never have to have the talk about sex because he understands there's seed and egg and a warm belly, and sometimes you need a doctor to help make all that happen, and that's it. Um, but. Um, when I, when the Dobbs decision happened and I was, you know, visibly upset for days, um, we talked about it and, and the idea that some people are pregnant and don't want to be, and he could not grapple with that because the amount of things that we had to do to become pregnant, he's like, why would you go through all of that and then not want to be pregnant? He just didn't, you know, so that connection was harder for him to understand. But the idea that you should be able to have control over your own body, I think really resonated with him. Well, kids don't like to be told what to do, right, too, right. right? And so that, you know, I I kind of, um, I think that's an important, you know, centering idea um, that, you know, at the end of the day, who gets to decide, right, what you do with your body? Um, and I think I think that it, it is it is challenging when you're like, they're like, wait, but d- didn't you really want me? And it's like, yes, that's the point, right? Every pregnancy should be, it should be wanted. It should be um, something that somebody has the resources for. Any any parting thoughts you have for each other about? I don't know. I guess keeping your your spirits up as you go forward. This is hard work, and we work in community with a lot of other incredible people. And I feel in- very privileged to be able to work with folks like Amanda. Work with our allies and in coalition and in really hostile places and to work with the clients that we have. Our clients are, they're going through it and they're not getting a lot of support often locally. We do this for them and they are our inspiration and uh, they are resilient when they didn't, shouldn't have to be, but they are. And um, what powers us is seeing them reunited with their families and back in their communities and um, being able to make them understand that they did not do anything wrong. 
It is an absolute privilege to be able to do this work. I wish I didn't have job security, but you know, it looks like we're going to have some job security for the next couple of decades. Um, but you know, it is um, it's an honor, just as Dana said, to um, to be able to to represent the clients we do and to to fight for the rights of of their patients and the people that they serve. That was Amanda Allen, senior counsel and director of the Lawyering Project and Dana Sussman, Acting Executive Director of Pregnancy Justice. And that's it for this episode of The Assignment. If you've got a new assignment for us, give us a call. Our number is 202-854-8802. We might use your voicemail in a future episode of our show. The Assignment is a production of CNN Audio. This episode was produced by Carla Javier and Lori Gallaretta. Our producers are Madeline Thompson, Jennifer Lai, and Dan Bloom. Our associate producer is Isoke Samuel. Our senior producer is Matt Martinez. Mixing this week by technical director Dan DeZula. Steve Lichtai is our executive producer. And of course, special thanks to Katie Hinman. I'm Audie Cornish, and thank you for listening. <laughs>